All right, following on from that uh, video, here's a little bit more context uh, from the uh, New Testament. It's uh, John chapter 13, and it's verses 1 to 17. Nope, maybe that's not. Um, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he began to wash his disciples' feet drawing them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 13 is the passage that we're going to be looking at. So if you had a Bible open there, that would be very helpful. I'm going to pray for us before we look at this together. So let's come before God in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to meet here as your people, uh, to know that we can look at what your word says, understand more about who you are and what you've done for us by sending your son Jesus into this world. Uh, We want to pray that you would help us to hear this and not just to hear it, but to be ready to respond to what your word says. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's been a bit of a tradition for the royal family to do a kind of a gap year thing at the end of finishing school. They normally try and do something that's very earthy and normal. Uh, Prince William, this was back when he had hair, um, he did his gap year and it was actually in a project, an orphanage in Chile. And he went down there for quite a few months to be able to work down there and be a bit more grounded as a human being. Uh, The royal family were very happy for these projects to take place and very happy for pictures to appear in the newspaper. But there was one photo that didn't go down so well, 
Wasn't this one? They were very happy about that. Looked great. He see all the hair he's got on his head there. Uh, and then this one, he always looks quite king-like in this photo, doesn't he? And this one, that was great. They loved that. This one, this next one, caused a huge stir, not just in the media, but also in the royal family. Can you guess why? There were those who thought that the future king of England ought not to be down on his knees scrubbing a toilet. They thought that that wasn't a fitting activity for a future king. Now, this morning we're beginning the second half of John's Gospel, and it's a chapter where Jesus causes a stir among his disciples for something not too far removed from cleaning the toilet. He washes his disciples' feet. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Now, before we jump in, go to John chapter 13 and verse number 1 and look at how this section starts. See, John's Gospel is pretty neatly broken up into two sections, 1 to 12 and 13 to 21. And the first verse is kind of an introduction to the second half of John's Gospel. Look at what it says. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It's just before the Passover celebration, the great celebration of God rescuing his people from their slavery in Egypt. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, the city of the king, and it's time for the Passover to be celebrated. And did you see what it said? Jesus knew that the time had come. If you've read the first half of John's Gospel, you'll know that Jesus said on a number of occasions that his time has not yet come. His mum wanted him to do the wedding at Cana thing and turn the water into wine, and Jesus said, no, it's not my time yet. Now he knows that his time has come. First half of John's Gospel is waiting for that time to come, and now the time has come. And then did you see what it says there in verse 1 as well? He now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus has clearly already shown his love to his disciples, but now they're going to see the full extent of his love. And it won't be in feet washing. It'll be a little further on in John's Gospel. We see the full extent of his love in his death on the cross. And that's clearly the focus of this second half of John's Gospel. Jesus and his disciples have gathered in an upper room to celebrate this Passover meal, this Last Supper, but what's about to happen, what unfolds, is that Jesus is ultimately going to be arrested. Well, We start at the beginning of chapter 13, a scene that just continues to unfold until Jesus is placed on the cross. He's arrested at the end of this, the end of the celebration of the Passover. So as the meal is being served, Jesus does something that stuns the disciples. He washes their feet. Washing someone's feet was the kind of job that servants did. It was something that was considered a bit icky, and given the world that they were living in that, that in those days and what you would be picking up on your feet as you walked around, it is a pretty icky job. 
And it's, you certainly wouldn't have expected your host at the dinner to be around and washed everybody's feet. Now, when Jesus kneels before Peter to wash his feet, Peter objects to it. And I suppose I can sympathise with him. I mean, if I ask someone to come up here now, if I put Deb to come up here and sit on a chair and Mike to get a bowl and, of water and a towel to wash her feet, I mean, it would be embarrassing for both of them, really, wouldn't it? So try to see things from Peter's perspective. Here's Jesus, the man who he knows to be the son of God now, the man who Peter has left everything to follow, and now Jesus is crouching down in front of him with a bowl and a towel about to wash his feet. Well, that just seems ridiculous to Peter. But there's clearly something more going on here than a personal hygiene issue. And you can see it from the exchange that's there, starting in verse number six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realise what I'm doing, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus points out that there is a teaching element to what's happening here. It's not just about washing feet. He's saying, I'm doing something now so that you'll understand something else later. But more about that in a moment. There's the, also the immediate lessons being taught here as well about serving one another. Pick it up in verse number 12 and see what Jesus says. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Lesson number one, serve one another. Be ready, be, be ready to humble yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't think that there is some job that is beneath you. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and they needed to be ready to do the same thing. They needed to be ready to serve each other. Now, this is a model of leadership that you would rarely, if ever, see anywhere in our world. Our world tends to think that you've arrived when you've got other people who can wash your feet for you. I mean, if you make it in business, you don't do the menial jobs anymore. You have other people to wash your car and to wash your clothes and to cook your meals and drive your car. But Jesus says it's not going to work that way for his disciples. Jesus has served them and given them the example that they are to follow, an example that still stands today. Christian, Christian maturity can be seen in your willingness to serve other people, not in a willingness to be noticed by others, not in a willingness to have the best seat in the house or the best title. Your devotion to Jesus is seen in your willingness to serve others. Now, there's another issue that runs through this story, and it's the issue of betrayal. 
Right at the beginning, we are told that Judas Iscariot will be the guy who dobs Jesus in. He will be the one who betrays Jesus, hands him over to be arrested. And I think because we, the readers, know that, there's this tension that seems to run all the way through this Last Supper. Because we know who the traitor is and we know what he's going to do. And we kind of wish the disciples knew what was happening as well. I'm sure that's the tension that builds up in us as we read through this. But as usual, they seem to be about as dumb as a post and don't understand anything that's going on. I mean, the frustrating part is where the disciples ask Jesus, who will it be that's going to betray you? But they can't even seem to figure that out. Look at verse 25. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Like, who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. I mean, could he have been any clearer? And it'd be hard to to imagine what else Jesus could have done. He says, watch carefully. I'm going to dip this bread into the wine and then I'm going to pass it to the person who will betray me. But look at what happens. Jesus actually speaks to Judas in verse 27. Jesus says, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to go to or to give some to the poor. I always feel like this is like one of those pantomimes, you know, the way pantomimes work, that the hero is standing out on the stage and the villain's hiding behind the curtains and all the kids are calling out, he's over there, he's over there. But they just don't seem to get it. Jesus knows exactly who's going to betray him, but the disciples can't seem to see it. Jesus knows that Judas will be the traitor. But Jesus isn't the slightest bit worried about all of this. In fact, he seems to be organising Judas, doesn't he? Mate, haven't you got something you need to do? The door's over there. I want you to notice something that's there in verse 19. Jesus says, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so when it does happen... You will believe that I am he. People would have been into the David Jones store in the city, you know, the one that's got the grand piano in the foyer, very often has a guy playing some delightful music in there. It's always quiet and serene. It's not just the place you'd like to shop, it's the place you'd like to live, if you could. It's a very classy store. But I had a friend who worked there over the Christmas period one time. But he didn't work in the classy part. He worked out in the storeroom out the back. And he said it was unbelievable, just chaos. He said you walked out into the storeroom, there were boxes turned over, ripped open, people trying to find things, stuff was scattered all over the floor. He said it was such a bizarre contrast, the absolute chaos of the storeroom, but you walk through that door that swings backwards and forwards and you walk out into this calmness and sereneness that's outside there. The next 24 hours are going to look like the storeroom for the disciples. It's all going to seem pretty chaotic. They're going to go to the garden. A group of soldiers in the middle of the night 
are going to come to arrest Jesus. He will be arrested, convicted in a sham trial, and finally put to death in the most humiliating way by being nailed to a cross. But Jesus wants to assure them it's totally under control. And not just is it under control, Jesus says, when you see this happen, that's proof that I am the Messiah. Look at it again. Verse 19, I'm telling you now, before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I am the Messiah, the Saviour. And again, this is where the whole foot washing thing comes back in. The foot washing was to prepare them for what Jesus was about to do in dying on the cross. He's not just setting them an example of service. He's he's explaining to them what it is that he will do by dying on the cross. It may appear to be a little bit humiliating for Jesus to be down on his knees with a towel wrapped around his waist washing his disciples' feet. But that doesn't even hold a candle to the humiliation that Jesus is about to experience as they nail him to the cross. The Son of God has served them by washing their feet and now he is going to serve them by dying on the cross. Now all that is incredible, but I think the most challenging thing that Jesus ever said to his disciples is there in verse 34. You know the verse, a new commandment I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the things I've always thought was a bit strange about that verse is that he says he's giving them a new commandment kind of pretty much looks like a pretty old commandment to me. I'm pretty sure God always God told us that we're supposed to love our neighbours as ourselves. But there is a new element in there. Can you see what it is? The new part is the extent to which they are to love. The old commandment was love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. But the new element that Jesus puts in is says, you are to love others as much as I have loved you. And he's talking about that in the context of heading to the cross to die. Now make sure you let that soak in for a moment. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. This is the night before he shows his, the full extent of his love to his disciples. And he's saying, that's how much I want you to love others. Not only that, Jesus says, that's the way that the world will know that you are my disciples. I still think that's one of the biggest challenges in the whole Bible for us as Christians. Just tucked away in there amongst the foot washing and the other things. But it's a huge challenge, isn't it? And it seems that church regularly falls short of the challenge. The world should know that we're disciples of Jesus because of the love that we have for other people. 
I can think of a number of times when I have seen this happen, when a church family are devastated by the death of a family member, but the church surrounds them and demonstrates that love. They're loved and cared for in a way that other people do notice that, that others can see it, that the love and the concern that's shown is obvious to everyone, that the whole world does see that you are, you are Jesus' disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. As Christians, we love because Jesus has loved us. We serve because Jesus has served us. We've seen the full extent of Jesus' love. We've seen how much we ought to love others. Now, it would be crazy to look at this passage and to not think about where this might go practically for each one of us, where the rubber will hit the road. I know that there are many people in our church who are already showing that love, that love towards others. But can I say a passage like this presents us with a challenge to think of more ways that we can love, show that love within our congregation, but show that love to others. Maybe something as simple as visiting someone or writing them a letter or sending them a text message, offering them some help, cooking a meal, inviting them over for a meal, catching up with someone at coffee, serving someone serving in some way here in the life of our church. It may be helping someone out financially. I mean, have a look around the church. Have a look around at morning tea time. Flick through those names in that church directory. Think about the people who are part of this church. Think about one practical way that you can do what Jesus says you ought to do. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Kate's going to pray for us. Thanks, Luke. Thank you, Lord, for your example of love. Thank you for your servant heart and your selflessness. Thank you for your ultimate act of love, paying for our sin by your death on the cross, through which we have been reconciled back to you. Help us to love one another each and every day as you have first loved us. About your Holy Spirit, give us a godly compassion towards others. May we keep our eyes on pleasing you and not ourselves. Despite our imperfections, may those around us see and feel your love working through us, that they may know that we are Christians and that you may be glorified. Forgive us for the times that we have not loved others or kept you as our first love. Let us all grow in our personal relationship with you, Lord, despite the busyness, the trials, the temptations of life. We earnestly ask for your help with this. In Jesus' name.